1: Welcome to Breaking Battlegrounds with your hosts, Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. Another fantastic program for you this week. First up today, Anna Giarratelli, the Homeland Security reporter for the Washington Examiner, covering the Department of U.S. Border and Policies Related to Cybersecurity, Immigration and Transportation, has a fantastic article out which you all should read about the fentanyl crisis.
2: Yeah, so, Anna, thank you for joining us um, today. Um, You wrote an article um, this past week called Prepare for Mass Overdose Events from Fentanyl. DEA warns police nationwide. A couple things about this. What has stood out to you about this mass overdose warning, and has the DEA done this
0: before? Yeah, Chuck and Pam, thanks for having me. So I've been covering uh, Homeland Security beat for a couple years and fentanyl, and we've only seen the issue of fentanyl grow and grow and grow. Um, What stood out was the Drug Enforcement Administration has never put out a statement like this um, saying, hey, local police nationwide, they sent this to every department in the country, get ready for mass overdose. So this is the kind of thing where... um, you know a group of people in their 20s or 30s go to a party in miami and they all buy what they think is Percocet from some guy at the club that percocet is actually counterfeit perfect percocet that's been manufactured um in mexico by the cartels and then they also put fentanyl in it the idea is if you can hook somebody when they don't know they're taking something and they're taking something else uh you you just you're going to have that customer come back for more of that product if it doesn't kill them. The issue is that people are unknowingly taking fentanyl through these counterfeit pills that they think are other things. And um, and then you're having like seven people at a party die from an overdose and and nobody knows what actually happened. So it's these types of uh, events that the DEA is saying, hey, we're, we're already seeing this, but we're going to start seeing a lot more of this because. People don't know what's in the drugs that they're that they're using.
2: And, and a mass overdose is when you have three or more people overdose at the same place, same time, right?
0: Yes, and really, it's just like a mass shooting. Um, it's three or more, and it's just a, you know, it's, it's a very unusual thing for the DEA to say. And I thought it was interesting in their statement, they didn't say why there's been an increase in fentanyl getting into the United States. Well, and we, uh, yeah,
2: it, it is with that. because we have this border that we just have lots of people coming through?
0: So most of the fentanyl that is taken into custody by U.S. border officials, so they work at the land, air, and seaports nationwide, is stopped either in the mail coming in from overseas or uh, at the ports of entry. So most fentanyl does not come between the ports of entry. Um, It's brought through vehicles that are stopped. That's where they're seizing the most. Um, which is indication of where they're trying to smuggle in the most but you know <laughs> um it,
1: it's yeah. also a lot easier to smuggle because you're you're talking a very relatively small amount would yeah. i mean you could put it in books yeah
0: yeah i mean like two like a grain of sand two or three it depends right the stuff coming over the southern border is typically like 10 to 15 percent potent compared to the fentanyl coming in through the mail and i've been with Federal inspectors at mail facilities at O'Hare, and it's, that stuff is 90 to 95% potent. So it's a lot different. But you get the really strong stuff, two to three grains of fentanyl. You know, think of like if you're at the beach looking at a grain of sand, that's enough to put you in a coma. So, smuggling uh, yeah. that is extremely, you know, you only need like, you know, if you're familiar with like a dime bag, that's a ton of fentanyl right in there. Um, and and that's how that's how little needs to go
2: into a pill, um, to to really to, to hurt somebody. We were before before the show. We were all here um, because we're all metric adverse and trying to figure out what is an example we can give of two milligrams. So the DEA states two milligrams is enough to kill somebody. And basically, the visual we have for our audience is two two milligrams is basically the size of Lincoln's nose on a penny, if you looked at it visually. Ah.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And it just, it's just amazing that such a small dosage can have such fatal effects not only on the person, on their life, but their family, their community, things of that nature.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the, you know, we've always had drugs. We're in the third phase now of the opioid epidemic um, with fentanyl. And so it's kind of like I think the, the popular train of thought is, well, just stop doing drugs. You know, people shouldn't be doing fentanyl. And the issue with this is people don't know they're doing fentanyl when they buy something. They're buying, like, oxycodone or they're doing this. It's not like someone who's a drug addict. It's a bachelorette weekend in Nashville. And, you know, the girls decide to get some stuff from a guy outside CVS. And, and then it they all end up in the hospital. Um, it's, it's that sort of situation.
1: Yeah, and um, at, at talking to the police here in Phoenix, what they're telling us is, while the hardcore drug users are actually now seeking out fentanyl, everyone else—it's so easy to have this adulterated in any other party drug uh, that these mm-hmm. these are just being it is being put in absolutely everything. And um, I mean, they're they're literally telling people go test your party drugs, yeah, send them yeah, to someone yeah. in the mail, yeah. Uh, yeah. and have that. It done. It sounds
0: crazy, right? Are they like really? Probably- yeah. I mean, it's yeah, like, literally, like, there are test kits now, and that's what the more progressive folks on drug policy are saying, is you need to test your drugs before you shoot up and before you take that tab. Um, and in Pima County, I had a story a couple months ago, the number one cause of death for teenagers is fentanyl overdose. So it wasn't COVID or car accidents or suicide. It was fentanyl overdoses. And so that's just, you know, we're starting to see the impacts of fentanyl. Obviously, if it comes over the, the border through the ports of entry and gets past officials, it's first coming into the country in those communities, and then it's being transported further north. And so I think it's, it makes sense that you're seeing, um, or I would imagine that you would see the impact initially, you know, like with overdoses being the number one in some of those border states
1: as it flows northward. Yeah, I, I think in Arizona, if you're under 35 now, fentanyl is the leading cause of death, period.
0: Wow,
1: wow. And it's second nationwide. I mean, drug yeah. overdoses are
2: second nation, nationwide. Yeah, so how much, fentanyl's
0: been the biggest, yeah.
2: So, Anna, let me ask you this question. How much do we spend on the drug war, trying to prevent fentanyl coming in, and comparing that to what we've spent on COVID? You know, know,
0: I don't have those figures. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean
2: because you're because we have on here. I mean, you made the point in your article that you know U.S. Customs and Border have seized eleven thousand two hundred pounds of fentanyl, which, if we equal out in the math, the two milligrams, that's two point five billion potentially fatal doses. So that seems like a real health crisis.
0: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you um and president biden in her city of the union speech called out the opioid crisis again um i think republicans and democrats typically get held up on is it coming at the ports of entry or is it coming between the ports of entry and we focus on the stupid aspect of (laughs) frankly um where is it coming instead of doing something instead of saying okay 85 to 90% is coming through the ports of entry as well as in international mail. You know, what can we do to actually secure the ports? Because right now only 15% of commercial traffic is inspected um, to prevent that. And then, you know, like fentanyl isn't going to go away, right? There's already the cartels are making something stronger than fentanyl. Um, But I think, like public education, people understanding this, um, fortunately, people don't realize until they know someone who's been affected by it. Well, and, and so I the, think that's an important
1: the cost of an epidemic like this compared to the cost of actually ramping up border security to to increase inspections. We're spending a lot more trying to save the lives of people who are being killed by this than we would by actually intervening in the first place. I mean, yeah. I, I'm throwing that out there, but it's- well, let's 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 change
2: from that rosy topic. Let's talk yeah. about um, Governor Abbott's bus ride he's preparing to do with um, um, immigrants who cross the border and, and, and are released. Um, tell us a little bit more about that, and how does this? How how do you foresee this works out at the end? Yeah.
0: Hmm. So the Governor uh, Abbott, who's seeking his third term in office this November. He um he's been the most vocal against the Biden administration's immigration and border policies. And he announced last week that the state which has seen the most uh people illegally cross the border come into custody, um, one point two million under Biden, more than any other southern border state. Um he said, Listen, we're not going to allow or we the way he worded it made it sound like the state is going to automatically transport every person released by the border patrol into the U S we're going to bust them to Washington, D C and that's leave them at the doorsteps of the U S Capitol.
1: Greyhound, Greg.
0: (laughs) And and the state is funding it too. Right. So it's like, okay, he's making a very political statement. When I looked into it and spoke with people from the Texas division of emergency management, the Texas department of public safety with the governor's office, with border patrol, Um, what the state is planning to do is similar to a hurricane evacuation. So if a hurricane comes to Corpus Christi, um, the state will say, hey, residents, we have buses. If we need to evacuate you out, you just got to sign this form and then voluntarily board the bus. We'll take you to Dallas. You'll be sick. Same thing with this. So migrants that are dropped off in the thousands um, every day across the country, say in McAllen, um, get released there, and then there would be buses there the, the local government has to opt in and ask the state for buses those buses would then be available for say migrants who are going who want to go to Washington DC <laughs> so if you, if you have family in Seattle and you're planning to go there from the border that's probably not the journey for you to go to DC um, but for people who are headed that way or headed to New England it makes a lot of sense. Um, and so it has not started yet. Um, you know, if it does start, you know, kind of waiting for the first lawsuit to be filed, right? Cause it,
1: it's, well, and, and over what sounds like, frankly, a ridiculous show pony of a policy.
0: And and that's the interesting thing. You've had a lot of conservatives come out and say, what are you doing?
1: Uh, Anna, um, before we, we go, we have a, just a, about 30 seconds left. How can folks follow you and stay up with your work? Because... Uh, we we love the stuff you're doing. We want our, our listeners out there to be able to keep track of your work as well.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. Um, so Instagram is actually probably the funnest way. Uh, it's Anna in D.C. with spaces in between each word. And I post post stuff there every day.
1: Fantastic. Well, Anna G. thank you so much for joining us. Uh, folks, keep track of her work. Anna in D.C. on Instagram. Breaking Battlegrounds. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. Our second guest in a packed lineup today, Ling Ling Wei. She is the chief China correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, co-author of Superpower Showdown. She covers China's political economy, focusing on the intersection of business and politics, which is one entity, essentially, in China. Uh, born and raised there, she has an MA in journalism from NYU and got her start covering U.S. real estate and uh, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, which is a big darn deal. Ling Ling, thank you so much for joining us on the program today.
0: Thank you. Glad to to be here.
1: What is going on right now in Shanghai? Because I, I I, I think not enough people out there are aware. I started following this on Twitter a few days ago, maybe a week ago. It is really astounding what China is doing. And their citizens seem to be starting to come apart at the seams.
0: Absolutely. Um, so what is happening in Shanghai this days is, is very, very uh, concerning. Uh, what really happened was, um, you know, just uh, a few weeks ago, Shanghai, uh, backed by power center in Beijing, was supposed to offer the entire China a road map to Chinese style coexistence with COVID. However, um, you know, this kind of uh, you know, living with COVID, this, this 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 purpose was very, very difficult uh to do in China because uh ever since the outbreak the COVID pandemic started in early twenty twenty, uh the leadership had set a goal of clearing of this Virus, um, in, you know, in, in, the country. Previously, they had done really well, um, uh, home confinement, uh, business uh, closures, travel bans all worked because the virus wasn't as transmissible as it is today. So that kind of, uh, lockdowns really worked. So with Shanghai, you know, uh, the, the Chinese leadership originally wanted Shanghai to do what it has been doing. For the past two years, which was, you know, basically just targeting affected neighborhoods, affected residential buildings, affected office buildings with lockdowns, instead of like full-on confinement of the entire city. Uh, however, you know, it was very difficult to, um, you know, still very difficult to clear the, the virus from from those neighborhoods, from those affected buildings. So, um, you know, very soon, other cities uh, near Shanghai or in the rest of China started to complain to Beijing that, you know, you know what, Uh, cases from Shanghai were spilling over uh, everywhere, basically making those localities uh, very difficult, making their job very difficult. So... um, very much alarmed uh, by the complaints. The top leadership, uh, uh, President Xi Jinping himself, ordered Shanghai basically to go into uh, a full lockdown uh, uh, about um, a week or 10 days ago. Uh, But because this whole order just came down so suddenly, um, that left uh, millions of families in Shanghai, all those residents, more than 25 million residents, very much unprepared, uh, you know, for home confinement. They, you know, didn't uh, get to stock up on food, on water, on vegetables. So a lot of them were just really, you know, uh, afraid of running out of food and water, just basic daily essentials. So there's definitely a sense of frustration, anger, and helplessness sweeping through the city these days.
2: I was reading today um, that, for example, the only service people really allowed outside their home are food delivery drivers, and they don't have enough of them because people don't want to do it. So now the government's trying to get Communist Party officials and members to deliver food, but in a very uncommunist like way, they want to be paid for it. So, how, you know, is Shanghai a major, you know, is is it fair to say Shanghai is the most Western city in China? by
0: head and shoulders? Absolutely. It's the most Western-oriented of all Chinese cities, and it's the most important city to China's economy. It's the financial center as well. So, um, you know, the experiment basically in Shanghai failed. it's not just a setback for a city of 25 million people, but also a setback for the top leadership. You know, for Xi Jinping, this couldn't have happened at the worst possible time, because, you know, later this year, he's going to seek another term in office, you know, very unprecedented third five-year term in the office, uh, even though China is a one-party uh, state, um, you know, public opinion, popular support uh, is still important because, you know, that would uh, uh, basically work as pressure points on him. Um, so it, it's really a very tough situation there. And and the turnabout in Shanghai, you know, the sudden, you know, uh, uh, going back to uh, lockdowns, to show how difficult it has become for China to abandon this whole zero-COVID approach it, that has basically underpinned uh, Xi Jinping's narrative that China managed the pandemic much better than the West.
1: And Chuck, I know you have a question here, but... This is a much harder lockdown than anyone in the United States has experienced. I mean, it is a absolute shutdown of this entire city.
2: Well, and the problem for Mr. Chi, as I see it, is because Shanghai is the most Western city, it's not like the government could do this in Wuhan or Chiang these smaller rural areas or provinces. These people have access to social media and so forth, right? So this is like screaming this to the world, which I'm sure – cause a dismay to mr Qi and the communist party is is that a fair assessment
0: oh yes uh definitely this uh lockdown in shanghai um is more severe than the one that happens during the earlier days of the pandemic and the lockdown wuhan um it, it's really because you know people in wuhan also have access to social media um, you know, in the other platforms to, you know, express their uh, frustration and anger. Uh, what, what makes this different this time is, you know, Omicron is it's like the wind, as one of the experts uh, we talked to told us. How do you stop the wind? How can you, you know, clear the virus when it has become so much more transmissible? And and, and also just, um, you know, people are tired of, of you know, repeated lockdowns. Um, Two years into the pandemic, the rest of the world is learning to live with the virus and China still, you know, re- ramping up re- lockdowns again. And, it just, you know, it is really becoming this kind of uh, strategy just have become more and more unpopular.
2: Well, which is amazing for a country that first denied it was happening. Right. I mean, wasn't that pretty much talking points that when it first started, it's not real, that this isn't real. COVID's not real.
0: Well, uh, yeah, earlier uh, during the pandemic, there there was a lot of denial on the severity of the pandemic. You know, the Chinese government definitely was slow to uh, to react. Uh, that really caused, uh, you know, quite a delay in, you know, how to respond to the COVID. And um, yes, there were a lot of uh, earlier uh, missteps. However, you know, uh, the lockdown uh, definitely worked, uh, you know, to a certain extent because, The wires back then. Ling Ling, I I apologize. I'm gonna
1: have to cut you off real quick. We're gonna bring you back when we come back from break breaking battlegrounds. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. On the line with us today, Ling Ling Wei, Chief China Correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Ling Ling, when we went to break, we were talking about China's response to the virus, the shutdown in Shanghai. What is the endgame for President Xi and the Chinese government with what appears to be an absolutely unstoppable endemic virus, especially at this point with the Omicron variant and its extraordinary transmissibility? How, how, do, how are they viewing this that is going to come to some sort of end? It, it doesn't seem likely that their measures are really going to succeed.
0: Well, for now, they're not changing the strategy. So as long as the zero COVID strategy remains in place, um, I, I, I can hardly see, you know, they trying anything different to cope with the virus. Um, one thing I wanted to point out is that um, you know uh, China could have avoided this kind of uh, repeated lockdowns and shutting down the entire cities, but to combat the virus, had it you know had better West vaccines early on. Um, you know, uh, for for the past two years, China has repeatedly basically resisted approving. Any large-scale adoption of the uh, mRNA vaccine developed uh, by Pfizer and um, other Western companies. So that's a really puzzling decision to a lot of healthcare and um, you know doctors um, in China because Chinese vaccines, yes, you know they are effective to a certain extent, but definitely not as effective. Uh, as mRNA uh, mRNA vaccines, So um, that really um, has been a contributing factor here in terms of why it has been so hard for China to uh, deal with the pandemic.
1: And Ling Ling, from what I understand, at least in Hong Kong, their vaccination strategy actually focused on the younger and less vulnerable segments of the population rather than the older and more vulnerable segments. Is that also been the case in the mainland?
0: Yes, there has been a lot of skepticism, especially among the elderly about, you know, the effectiveness and the safety of vaccines. So they haven't done a great job in terms of uh, vaccinating the older population. That really uh, led to, you know, a huge spike in death rates in Hong Kong, as you just pointed out. Um, You know, that also is a factor that, you know, the top leadership is so bent on, uh, you know, continuing the zero COVID strategy because they were worried about the elderly, you know, because, you know, those people are least vaccinated and at least protected here.
1: Well, and and they're saying that they haven't had any deaths, but you've had uh, in your reporting and I've seen elsewhere, that's highly unlikely to actually be the case.
0: Absolutely. Um our, our colleague in Hong Kong really has done a brilliant job in terms of uh, you know, actually finding out uh, quite a few elderly care facilities where um, you know, at least uh twenty patients had already died of uh you know, unknown reasons, and their family members uh, were blaming COVID. Uh, because of a lack of transparency and independent press in China, it is very hard for us to get to the bottom of it. But definitely, you know, there is a lot of uh, questions about the truthfulness of the data.
2: So let me ask you this question. So they're talking about, you know, because of, you know, the shutdown in Shanghai and the other provinces, about 40 percent of, China's production is now in areas that they've closed down, okay? Which means you're going to lower your target for your gross domestic product. And they're talking about China is going to boost stateless spending on infrastructure and things of that nature. What does this mean for the gross domestic product, and what does that mean for them buying U.S. debt, the the ugly bugaboo no one wants to talk about? Well,
0: the Chinese economy definitely is facing much more Either half wins than you know the top leadership had expected uh, earlier this year. So they uh, set up quite an unrealistic target of five, about 5.5 percent uh, rate for this year. And now with the lockdown of almost you know uh, um, the entire country, entire basically major all the major cities in the country industrial economic hustling in in a country, basically uh, the the likelihood of China growing slower definitely uh, has risen uh, tremendously. Um, That really... uh, in terms of their holding of U.S. dollar data, I I believe that the Chinese government has been gradually unloading their treasury holdings over the years.
1: And, and Lingling, before we we come up to our break here, and thank you for joining us, what is the best way for folks to follow you and your work?
0: I guess uh, you know, uh, subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, uh, <laughs> and you can also and and you can also follow me uh, on Twitter. At Lingling WEI. That's my Twitter handle.
1: Fantastic. Lingling Wei, thank you for joining us. And folks, subscribe to the Wall Street Journal and follow her on Twitter. Good advice. Great advice.
0: You deserve a home that's beautiful and stylish. At Overstock, you don't have to choose between low prices and quality. Find new on-trend home goods that reflect your taste and don't compromise on value. You can be proud of your home and design a space where you feel like you, all under budget. Plus, you get free shipping on everything in the continental United States. Overstock is where quality furniture and decor costs less.
1: All right, welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your hosts, Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. Unbelievable show today. On the line with us, our third guest, Michael Kimmage. Michael is a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America. He's also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund from 2014 to 2017. He served on the secretary's policy planning staff at the U.S. Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio, publishes widely on international affairs, U.S.-Russian relations, and American diplomatic history, his latest book, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, was published by Basic Books in April of 2020. He's also the chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council. Those are a lot of fantastic titles, especially given what is going on right now, Michael. Obviously, the Ukraine war is continuing to dominate news as it should around the globe. Russia has found themselves in a situation they never imagined. What is the endgame for Vladimir Putin in this conflict?
3: Well, it's definitely not the one that he anticipated before the war. We do have, I think, a lot of indications that they thought it would be easy, the Russians, that the Ukrainian government would fall or Zelensky would flee uh, or that they would run the tables militarily, and none of that has come to pass. So he's readjusting for sure. I can't imagine that somebody like Putin would give up and just turn back to Russia. So I think probably the end game he may have in mind at the moment is a long war of attrition where, you know, this just goes on indefinitely, uh, and he tries to seek uh, advantage and see if he can get signs of weakness from the other side.
1: For For the Russian military, I mean, that's going to continue extracting. I know they have huge stockpiles of equipment, but the human toll, at what point does that start playing on the political level in Russia, where folks are simply sick of all the missing and dead soldiers that this is creating, especially with a conscript army that in many cases are are inadequately trained?
3: It's a very good question. And, uh, you know, I think that the chickens will come home to roost at a certain point for Putin. This is a failing venture in the scheme of things and the political objectives that got them into the war in the first place, some kind of control or influence over Ukraine. I think those are becoming not Easier to achieve, they're becoming over time more difficult to achieve. Uh, and so your question is a very good one. A war of attrition will be costly for Russia. Uh, it will bring about political costs for Putin, certainly. But I don't think we're speaking of weeks or months in terms of the Russian public getting tired of this war. I think we might have to be speaking in terms of years. And that's, that's a pretty grim calculus, I know, but that's, that's I think, how, how, the, how the situation is at the moment.
2: Let me ask you this how, What do you see happening to Russia? If this goes on for years, I mean, you've seen some estimates that this lasts ten, fifteen years. Okay, what does this mean for Russia long term? I mean, you have these economic restrictions now; they seem to be doing more clamping down by the week. What is the end game for him on this? It does he can't just show weakness at all and just say I'm going to take this eastern portion and leave? What What is the end game for him on this? Because Ukraine's not going away quietly in the night.
3: Not at all. No. And, uh, you know, he faces a very difficult path, really, in every direction. If he would yield and just give up, uh, he would come across uh, as not just looking weak, but actually being weak. So I think that's very hard for him to, to accept. I think it would be hard for him to, to do. I think that uh, he may feel that the costs to Ukraine are so great that Ukraine may come to the table with concessions that Russia could accept. I think that for Putin is one possible end game. And also, Putin began the war on the assumption that he wasn't going to encounter that much resistance from the United States and from Europe. I think he's miscalculated there, but I'm not sure that uh, we've really changed his mind fundamentally yet. He may feel over time that people will lose interest, the sanctions will start to fizzle out, and uh, people will sort of move on and change their uh, perception, look at uh, other conflicts with more uh, attention than they do at Ukraine, and then Russia may be gaining certain advantages that way. But uh, I think that's about the best that he could expect at the at the, at the moment.
1: My, Michael, is Russia putting itself in a position where essentially economically they're going to become far more reliant and, and potentially even subservient to China because they're the only country that can provide an out for their economy in terms of providing all the things they need as well as the markets they need at this point?
3: I think that's very correct. I think subservient is probably an overstatement, but certainly increasingly dependent on on China. Uh, that's, uh, you know, one of the many negative consequences this war is going to have for, for Russia. Uh, you know, you could qualify the point a little bit. India has held back from the sanctions. You know, most countries in the Middle East have not sanctioned Russia. Same is true for Latin America. So, you know, Russia has options in terms of markets in some of those places, but it's a much less natural market for Russia than Europe would be. And the technology transfer that you get from connections to the U.S. and Europe, that's unparalleled. And Russia has just cut itself off from all of that until it changes course completely. So that might be for a very long time.
2: Can you explain to our audience what the MISC agreement was and how this led up, how this was part of this Ukraine invasion?
3: I can explain it from the Russian side as best I can. Thank uh, you. And if you want to ask about the European side or the U.S. side, I'm happy to speak about that as well. But let me stick to Russia, since after all, they're the country that invaded. And we want to be very clear on their thinking. And we don't have terrific evidence on this, so a lot of us, myself very much included, are speculating here. That's why I you make the I big bucks a- as
2: a college professor. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> exactly. That's why I
3: make the big bucks as a college professor. So take what I say with a grain of salt, uh, and uh, I'll do my best. I think that Putin had... Uh, you know sort of two general motivations for beginning this war Uh, one goes back to 2014 and to a revolution in Ukraine that pointed Ukraine much more toward Europe and the West and Putin didn't like that outcome Uh, and he did certain things in 2014 he annexed Crimea and he invaded a part of eastern Ukraine and his hope was that this would give him a kind of lever over Ukraine and allow him to pull it back into Russia's orbit and basically, the exact opposite happened. Ukraine deepened its relationship to Europe. It deepened its relationship to the U.S., economic and military terms. And so I think Putin looked at Ukraine in 2021, early 2022, and said, This country is going in the exact wrong direction. How can I change its course? He no longer has the option of persuading the Ukrainians. Uh, and so military force, I think, became for him the answer. Uh, I don't think it's going to bring him what he wanted, but I think that was his thinking. On the eve of the invasion i think the other thing that putin had in mind with this and i think the jury will be out on this point for a long time to come is that he wants to rewrite the rules of how people do business internationally Uh, and he wants to make it less about american influence less about international institutions less about the sovereignty and independence of what russia thinks of as small countries like ukraine and more about what powerful countries are able to do in their core areas of interest And what I think Putin feels is that it's his right to determine how things go in his neighborhood uh, and the U.S. and Europe and nobody else can tell him otherwise. So he wants to change the rules in that respect uh, and show that might makes right uh, and see how far that takes him.
1: That's a fascinating point. Michael, you're talking potentially about this war lasting for years. It feels like so far the approach to supplying Ukraine with weapons, food, medicine, everything else they need to engage in combat with the Russian military has been very piecemeal on the part of the West. Do you see or hear of any efforts out there to start planning for a multi-year pipeline to provide all those things?
3: I'm sure that there are such efforts. I'm not privy to them. Uh, Personally, I noticed that uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, I believe it was yesterday, made a few comments about this war probably lasting for quite a while. So, you know, he's well aware of that as a possibility. And if so, I'm sure that the U.S. government is planning for long-term support to Ukraine. And I'm sure that for the other European partners who are doing the same, especially Britain and France, that similar preparations are being made. Where I think, you know, to focus for a moment on the Biden administration, where they have to be very you know, sort of committed and energetic is not just in military aid to Ukraine. Uh, You know, I think that they'll get that part of it right, I'm pretty sure. Where they have to be very committed and energetic is on informing the American public, you know, letting them understand why the sanctions program is important, letting them understand why military support for Ukraine is important. And even if there aren't going to be great results to show, you know, this summer or this fall, Uh, to have the American public ready for a conflict that really does have the potential to go for the long haul. So we're going to need patience. We live in a social media era where people have very quick emotional responses to news and often expect things to happen very quickly. Uh, That's not how this conflict is going to play out. So it's, it's, it's necessary for all of us to start thinking uh, in the long term, it doesn't make me happy to say that, but I just uh, you know I feel it's, it's necessary.
2: We're with Michael Kimmich. He is the Professor of History and Department Chair at Catholic University, um, a fellow at the German Marshall Fund, and from two thousand fourteen to seventeen he served as Secretary of Policy's Planning Staff at the US. Department of State. Let me ask you this, do you think Putin has acted more reckless than his predecessors when they were the Soviet Union?
3: Yes. In fact, I can't think of an episode in the last hundred years, looking back at both Soviet and Russian foreign policy, that it shows this degree of recklessness. If you wanted to be, you know, comprehensive about the history, you might go back to 1905. And that was the year that Russia chose to go to war with Japan, and they lost very badly. And that actually sparked a revolution both in 1905 and was a contributing factor in the Russian Revolution of 1917. So that was pretty reckless and had some pretty profound consequences for Russia, this seems to me, uh, if anything, more reckless. The scale of the invasion, the casualties that Russia has suffered so far, I mean, I think there are alleged to be 15,000 fatalities for Russia. That's apparently more than all of the Soviet war against Afghanistan. You know, the total U.S. fatalities in the Vietnam War is around 57,000, and we all know what a, you know, what a trauma that was. Uh, for the United States, so this is extraordinary in those terms, but also the economics of it are very reckless for Russia. You know, it's not a stable, strong global economy. Uh, as we talked about a moment ago, it has dependence on China. It needs access to markets. Russia certainly needs access to technology transfer. All of those things are long-term good for Russia, and they just made their lives so much more difficult with this war. And I, they, I think this is my assessment that over time, I'm guessing over a couple of years, they're going to lose this war. So that's maybe the ultimate recklessness. All of these prices paid, all of these burdens assumed uh, in the name of a military venture that's very, very unlikely to succeed.
2: Michael, uh, I'm, I'm going to have you put on your, your analyst hat here, right? So you're, this is only purely conjecture. But why do you think the world has just united around this, at least the European and the and the Americans? And and we seems like we've all of a sudden discovered again we need to work together you know um why do you think there's been such an outcry about this versus what they did in georgia or chechnya because well, they're they quite go ahead yeah please go ahead
3: two things i would emphasize one is how terrible a job putin and the russian government has done to develop a narrative i mean maybe for their own people it's different but to develop a narrative that speaks to international audiences you know we for the last six, seven years, have often put Russia on a pedestal, the master manipulators, people who can go in and turn elections in other countries and, and uh, you know, shape and manage public opinion. Uh, you know, we've said those things over the last couple of years. At times, they've been true, perhaps, but it's definitely not true at the present moment. I mean, Putin has not convinced anybody that this is a war that makes sense. Uh, and then you have all these sort of crazy arguments that the Russian government comes up to when atrocities are are pointed out, and they say that the Ukrainians killing themselves to, to blame Russia for these things. It's just completely unpersuasive, uh, and you see a real failure. Every war is a battle for hearts and minds, and uh, you know the Russians have done a terrible job on that front with this war from the very moment that it began. So that's an important part of the story, I think, and that matters. It's less important, though, than the second point I would want to make, which is uh, that you've seen some real leadership in Ukraine, real wartime leadership, uh, from Volodymyr Zelensky, who before this, was an entertainer, television personality, and comedian. And that might sound like it's you know questionable background for a politician, but it's actually served him very well. He's a good communicator. He's done a great job communicating on social media. And you know, beyond just his skills at communication, what he's doing is telling a story that really rings true, I think, for all of us. This is the will of a country to survive, to defend itself, to maintain its Sovereignty and independence, you have echoes of the American Revolution in that story. And I think a lot of people from outside Ukraine could look on the country and say, well, maybe I didn't know much about this country before the war, but how could I not sympathize with the Ukrainian people? So I think it's on the basis of that sympathy that you've gotten all of this very real foreign policy and political support for Ukraine.
1: Absolutely. Michael, before we wrap wrap up here, tell folks how they can follow you and your work.
3: Well, it's kind of you to ask. I do uh, post on Twitter. Uh, at M Kimmage uh, and uh, you know, try to say a few things in that medium, but I'm a little bit more comfortable publishing in article form, so I have written three articles about the war so far, all of them in Foreign Affairs uh, the journal, all of them titled What If, <laughs> What If Russia Wins, What If Russia Michael, Loses. Thank,
1: thank you so much Breaking Battlegrounds back on the radio next week. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. This is the podcast only segment. Chuck, we had three pretty darn good guests, people I want to get back on this program again soon today. Anna Giartelli, Homeland Security Reporter for the Washington Examiner, Ling Ling Wei, Chief China Correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. And then Michael Kimmage, a Professor of History, has served in the U.S. State Department yeah, on Ukraine. You know you what stuck out to me on this? Uh, and I have always felt this for all
2: presidents. Um, so I feel it for Biden, too, because he is our president. Um presidents wake up to these national security reports every morning. I don't know how you're not just popping Xanax or drinking, reading this every day. I mean, it's just like everything is is tender. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, we talked about three things that aren't far out. These are literally happening now.
1: Well, and and you're combining that right now with really rough domestic conditions when you talk about inflation, when you talk about fentanyl, which we were talking about on the program, when you talk about everything immigration, everything that's going on in this country right now is adding to that. You have a really difficult stretch for a president who, I got to be honest, doesn't seem like he's really up to the challenge. No, but we need him to be.
2: Um, You want all your presidents to provide peace and prosperity. So, you know, let's look at the fentanyl situation. That is self-made. People can stop taking drugs. It's pretty much something we could eliminate if people practice personal responsibility. The Shanghai situation and 40% of their manufacturing base or economic base is being shut down. I don't think Americans understand what that means for our debt and how we well, service it and for, all our for our too. inflation inflation it's unbelievable and then ukraine um it was great having michael i'd like to get him back on for a longer time but we're look we're in this road here you know i mean you and i may be retired before that thing's resolved
1: well and on top of that one thing we didn't get to with michael that i also wanted to touch on is given the way the the russian military is conducting this campaign with a, with essentially unrestricted bombing and shelling of major urban areas at some point, you're going to have to engage in a rebuilding process, something akin to the Marshall Plan, or you're going to end up with one of the poorest countries in the world where disease and everything else runs rampant. Well, and, not only will you have that, but it's also Ukraine's a breadbasket.
2: I mean, critical, this is this is affecting populations in Egypt and Africa and Europe um, and The ramifications of what they're doing to the economy, to transportation, their supply chain is going to have ramifications in other countries. And it's going to start trickling out this year and next year. You'll see it when people don't eat and they're starving, which is what's happening in Shanghai right now. We saw a video this morning in our group text of the guy in the street just yelling, saying, I'm out of food April 5th. I have no more money. That's all I do. And, you know, Shanghai is not like Phoenix where a lot of people have a yard and they can go grow something. Right. It's just this is what they get. They're in a. 400-square-foot
1: apartment a lot of times there. Well, and and, I mean, I think realistically, when you're talking about modern cities, without any sort of network for delivery and everything else, with everything shut down, you're going to start having real impacts from that. They've also shut down their hospitals to treatment for all sorts of other things. That's going to result in a lot of dead dead people. I really wonder if this is going to affect G's chances to to win this next election, uh, even though it's an inter-party election, if there isn't someone else who is going to step up. I just haven't seen anybody's head pop up yet, from what I've read. I mean,
2: I'm not a China expert, but read enough of it that I just don't see it. But if you're in the United States, there'll be a lot of speculation right now on all your cable news programs.
1: Well, same thing for Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, these guys are holding on via military power in their countries. If this was here, you would be very, very legitimately able to impeach either one of them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, great show today, Kylie. Jamie, as always, thank you very much. And everybody, we hope you have a great week, and we'll we'll talk to you soon.
0: The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from godaddy.com. Your political career depends on it.